Good evening. I'm going to preach from down here. This is just a little bit easier for me to do that, and I like being able to move around a little bit better. So good to see everyone this afternoon. I was going to study over my lesson, and I uh, took a nap this afternoon, and I woke up, and I thought I had plenty of time, and Sherry said, you remember that we meet at 5 o'clock now on Sundays, and I went into panic. So that went out of the window for tonight. I'm going to share with you a lesson that I prepared for polishing the pulpit, and it is one that I had... There we go. All right. It is one called Living on the Edge of Eternity. I had 45 minutes to present it at uh, PTP, and so I have adjusted it to put it into a 30-minute format. If you want to hear the whole lesson and the additional 15 minutes, let me know and I can send you the link for that. Living on the edge of eternity. We're going to approach this in three different points, three different questions tonight. The first point is going to be, what does that mean? The second point is going to be, how do we deal with it? And then the third point is, what if we fall off of the edge? All right, here is our first point tonight. What does it mean to be living on the edge of eternity? I looked up the phrase living on the edge on dictionary.com, and this is the definition that I got. It said living on the edge means in a precarious position, also in a state of keen excitement as from risk or danger, and then it says, number two, it refers to the farthest possible point you can go before falling off of something, the verge or the brink. And so what we're talking about when we discuss living on the edge of eternity is we are as close to the edge as you can get. We're on the verge of it. We're on the brink of it. In fact, it would be good to ask the question, how close are we to crossing that line? Worldwide, two people die every second. And so if you were to snap your fingers, you say 1,001, 1,002, two people every second. In fact, 1,001, that's two people. 1,002, two people. 1,003, and you can see how quickly people are close to the edge of eternity. One in six people will die of heart disease. One in seven people will die of cancer. According to the World Health Organization, road traffic injuries cause 1.35 million deaths worldwide. That is, one person is killed every 26 seconds on average because of a traffic-related accident. In the United States of America, the highest rate of traffic fatalities, I thought was interesting, was in the state of Mississippi, which is where we moved here from. The next state was the state of South Carolina, which is where we were, we were before Mississippi, so we're moving in the right direction anyway. The least deaths from traffic fatalities was Rhode Island. I read that just this last week or last month at this point, there was a man, 40 years old, he was in Portland, Oregon, Oregon. He was hiking with his wife and with his children, and he was right on the edge of the mountain, and his foot slipped, and he fell off of the edge, and his wife and his children saw him do that. 
The Lord tells us about living on the edge of eternity in Luke chapter 12 because He tells us about a man who was a rich farmer. In fact, this man was so rich that he did not have barns big enough to keep all of his crops and his goods. And so the man decides, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns. And then he said to himself, So, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That is, live it up. You've got plenty. You've got plenty of time. Enjoy your retirement. But the Lord said, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who shall these things be? This man had absolutely no idea that he was going to die at any time, much less that he was going to die that night. But you see, he was living on the edge of eternity. In Luke chapter 13, in the very next chapter, Jesus tells about some men upon whom the tower of Siloam fell, killing them. It was unexpected. These men didn't know they were living on the edge of eternity, but a tower fell on them and killed all of them. That's what happens when you're living on the edge. Sometimes you fall off and you don't expect it. You get three chapters later, Luke chapter 16, and Jesus tells about two men who died. One was an exceedingly poor man, a beggar in fact. He was apparently crippled, maybe a paraplegic, because the Bible says that the dogs were coming and licking his sores, and it appears there was nothing he could do about it. The sores, I've wondered if they were pressure sores from not being able to move himself around, I don't know, but apparently someone laid him in this spot. It was the gate of a rich man, and he was begging for the leftovers. He was living on the edge of eternity, and he died. On the other side of the gate was a very rich man. He lived the life of luxury. He had all the pleasures that this world had to offer, but he too was living on the edge of eternity, and he died. James asked the question, Whereas you do not know what will happen on tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away, James 4, 14. What do you mean by that, James? James means you're living on the edge of eternity. And even if you live a long life, it's not that long. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2 says, It's better... Now listen to this. This is a very interesting statement by Solomon. It's better to go to the house of mourning... That's talking about a funeral. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Why would it be better to go to a funeral than a party? He says, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take heart. Why is it better to go to a funeral than a party? He says, because that is the end of all men, and it makes you stop and ponder it. It makes you think about life. It makes you sober and you stop and you contemplate your life and the fact that you too are living on the edge of eternity and you're going to head there. So what does it mean to be living on the edge of eternity? It means we're close to the edge and at any minute we could slip off. Here's the next point. How do we deal with it? How do you deal with living on the edge of eternity? What would you do if you had a friend who was standing at the edge of the road and a truck was coming and about to hit them. What would you do? You say, well, I'd warn them. I would yell at them. I'd maybe grab them. I'd maybe even shove them out of the way. 
I saw a video on YouTube or Facebook or something recently, and it was a man. He was standing right at the edge of a, of a train track, and it looked like he was talking because there was an easel there, and he was facing the people. He did not know that a train was coming. I don't know how he couldn't hear it, but the train was getting closer and closer, and just as it was a few feet away, one of the men standing there grabbed him and yanked him back, and it just barely missed him. What do you do at a moment like that? Do you think, well, you know, he's standing there, but I don't want to interrupt him by yelling at him. I don't want to offend him because I might startle him and, and offend him if I yell at him. Now somebody says, okay, Don, I see what you're doing. You're trying to compare uh, a person who's about to be killed physically to spiritually, but they're not the same thing. You know, if a train hits you or a car hits you, you're going to die. But spiritually, it's not the same. Listen to this. Jude verse 22 says, Have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that's stained by the flesh. What does he say? When you warn a person who is in sin, you're snatching them out of the fire. What is the Lord saying? It's the same. It is the same. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We say what we need to say. We warn them. We snatch them out of the way because it is the same. Now, brethren, how should that translate into our preaching? It might not surprise you if I said to you that I believe that the greatest threat facing the Lord's church today is soft preaching. Now somebody might say, Don, don't be silly. The greatest threat is false doctrine. But you know, false doctrine is, is obvious. False doctrine is easier to refute because you can point it out. False doctrine is like being close to the edge, but you can see the edge. Somebody else says, no, no, Don, the, the greatest threat would be ignorance. That, that is the biggest threat to the Lord's church. But you see, weak preaching contributes to ignorance. Somebody else says, no, 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 I, I think the greatest threat is apathy. But watered-down preaching causes apathy. You see, weak, soft preaching is like being close to the edge, but you don't know that you're close to the edge because it, it just doesn't occur to you. Weak preaching is unlike the Lord's preaching. It's unlike the apostles' preaching. It's unlike the preaching of the prophets. It is pleasant to the listener, and generally it's pleasant to the preacher. But it's not the kind that will save a soul in eternity. What do you do if somebody's close to the edge? You warn them. That's true in the world. It should be true with our preaching. Secondly, what about our children? What do we do with our children if we know that our children are close to the edge? What do we do? We put up safety devices. When our children were little, we used to have this gate and it would stretch out and we would put it at the top of the stairs. You know what I'm talking about? So that they would not fall down the stairs. Most congregations I've been in, there is a lock on the door to the baptistry. Several years ago, the church where we were at in Duluth, Georgia, after we moved away during a fellowship meal, one of the children got into the baptistry and drowned. That's the fear that that might happen. And so we take appropriate steps for those who are on the edge, our children, to protect them. But here's the thing. Our children may not be on the edge of a building or the stairs or the baptistry, 
but they are living on the edge of eternity. What are we going to do to protect them? Can you imagine the thought that our children are living on the edge of eternity? The edge of eternity. And instead, we're work- we are worried about soccer practice, or their math grade, or their ACT score, or whether or not they're going to get a scholarship. It would be like a car is about to hit them, and we're worried about the fact that they haven't combed their hair. Or we're worried about the fact that their clothes don't match. What difference does that make if they're about to be hit by a car? So what should we be doing with regard to our children? We need to have them at worship. We need to be teaching them at home. We need to have home devotionals. We need to have them in a congregation that is solid so that they are being grounded in the Word of God. We need to be consistent. We need to practice what we preach. They need to see us living it. You know, children can spot hypocrisy. I read a study just recently that said the University of of Chicago psychologists have found that children as young as seven years old can spot hypocrisy. We need to be sure they don't spot it in us. Now, when you're thinking about living on the edge of eternity, we need to be serious about our preaching. We need to be preparing our children. Next, we need to be evangelizing. Could you imagine if you saw someone who was near the edge of a cliff? What if you saw a blind person and they're walking to the edge of the cliff or a person they're walking out to the road and a car is coming and we just said nothing? We just stood there and watched. What kind of person would you be? What kind of person would do that? In Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 18, the Lord said, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you do not give him warning, and you do not seek to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. Yet, if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your own soul. That is, the Lord said, if you don't warn the wicked man, then his blood is going to be on your head. Listen what Paul said, Acts 20 and verse 26, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent from the blood of all men. Paul, why are you innocent? He says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. You know, preaching the whole counsel of God is not easy. An older preacher was telling me about a book that he was familiar with from years ago. It was called, When Our Virtues Become Our Vices. And he said that the the, the gist of this book was, when we focus so much on the positive in our preaching that we ignore the other things then our positives become our negatives. And so, a preacher might be told, if you preach on certain topics, then you're divisive. Or he might be told, if you do sermons on, you know, these subjects, then you're going to run people off. If you preach on these things, you won't be appealing to our visitors, and we're trying to win our visitors. He might be told, mentioning the one church, that's offensive. He might be told, avoid doctrinal preaching because it's boring, it's too academic. We need to hear things that speak to our day-to-day lives. We need to hear you address the struggles of life and the storms of life. And we need, and certainly it's true, we need to talk about the struggles of life and the storms of life. And absolutely, we need to make our preaching um, applicable 
But we can't ignore these other things. And so what happens is this. Either with a genuine desire not to be offensive or divisive, uh, a preacher might just kind of adjust his preaching so that he avoids these certain topics. Or maybe he doesn't even have a, a good motive. Maybe it's not because he's a good man and trying to, to do uh, what's right. Maybe he just likes a good paying job and he likes the benefits, and so he just goes along because it feathers his nest. Let me tell you why I say that one of the most dangerous things a preacher could fall into is this type of preaching. I say that because a preacher, could, he could preach on the struggles of life and how to be strong through them. He could preach about the historical aspects of the Bible, Bible times and Bible culture. He could preach about geography and landscapes, and he could preach about kindness and goodness and the grace of God. He could preach about the greatness of God and the deity of Jesus. He could give powerful and moving sermons on how to be a good neighbor. He could tell the stories of David and Goliath and Jonah and Noah and other fascinating accounts from the Old Testament. And... All of these topics could last him for years. Yea, his entire preaching career, and he would not offend anybody, and, or very few anyway. He'd be loved by everyone. He, was, he would be viewed as holy and kind. He could keep his job, and he could have big numbers, and he could brag to everybody about what great numbers he had. But unbelievers and, as, as a matter of fact, unbelievers and denominational people would come and they wouldn't be stirred. They wouldn't have their hearts pricked. They would leave thinking, boy, that Church Christ preacher, he's a fine fella. And you can certainly understand the temptation to be that guy. What preacher wouldn't want to be that guy? But here's the problem. The whole counsel of God doesn't get preached. Their blood will be upon your head. Marriage and divorce doesn't get addressed. Huge problem in the world today. Souls are going to be lost because of it. But if you don't address it, if you do address it, it's going to cause a stir. It's going to be offensive. You won't talk about modesty. And so the church begins to look more and more like the world, but you certainly can't talk about that topic because it will bring a firestorm. If you talk about lasciviousness, dancing, or the prom, hmm. Social drinking, you better tread lightly on that one. You can't discuss the sin of denominationalism because what if a visitor is there? Anything relating to politics, even if it crosses the line of right and wrong, and so what happens is the congregation becomes more and more worldly and the devil wins a victory. It's, it's a clever, disguised victory, but it's a victory nonetheless. What do you do when you're living on the edge? What do you do for yourself if you're on the edge? You say, well, I stay away from the edge. That, that's what I do, and that's the smart thing to do. You know, some Christians want to see how close they can get to the edge. With regard to their time, they want to give the bare minimum to the Lord. With regard to their dress, they want to look as much like the world as they possibly can. When it comes to temptation, they want to have as much as possible entertainment, stretch the limits to the limit. Is that what we do when we talk about walking on the edge of a cliff? Do we try to see how close we can get to the edge? This is what the Lord says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11, "...have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather avoid them. 
Don't see how close you can get, how much of a friend you can be. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee fornication. Proverbs 5 and verse 8, do not go near to the door of her house. The Lord says, stay away from the edge. Here's the last point. What if we fall off? You know, the thought of being on the edge of a, of a building, a tall building, is terrifying. In fact, I looked up a list of the most common phobias. Do you know what the number one phobia is? The fear of heights. You know what number two is? Number two was, of course, the fear of heights is acrophobia. Number two was aerophobia, which was the fear of flying, which I thought, that's really the same thing, isn't it? The fear of flying and the fear of heights. That's the two number one and number two fears that people have. I thought it was interesting. Also on the list of phobias, there is something called homilophobia, which is the fear of sermons. I hope you don't have that one, but that truly is a real uh, fear. The thought of being on the edge is unnerving. You know, if you think about a child on the edge of a building, that, that's scary to us. If your doctor tells you you are on the verge of cancer, you are in the early stages of cancer, I imagine that is top of the list kind of scary. But you know, none of those things is as frightening as what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about living on the edge of eternity. That's the scariest of them all because the fact is, I probably will never fall off of a cliff. Most of us will not fall off of a, of a cliff, but everyone in this room will fall off of the edge into eternity. And the fact that we're living on the edge of it means that we are very close. First, I want to ask the question, what is eternity? I've heard various preachers seek to explain eternity in different ways, and I was listening to a denominational preacher recently, and he was describing eternity, and he said, I want you to imagine that you are in a sandbox and you've got a parakeet. And I was thinking, where is he going with this illustration? But he said, imagine each grain of sand that the parakeet picks up a grain of sand and he flies with it to the moon and he drops it on the moon, and then he flies back. And it takes him a million years to go there and back. And he picks up the second grain, and he goes there and back, and the third grain, and he says, until he empties the sandbox. And he said, then you move him to the beach. And he does the same thing with every grain of sand on the beach. And then he said, then you take him to the Sahara Desert, and he does the same thing on the Sahara Desert. And he said, after he has emptied out all of that sand... He hasn't even moved the needle on eternity. Interesting. He's trying to get in our minds how long it is. How does the Bible describe eternity? There are several Hebrew words in the Old Testament for eternity. The most common word in the Old Testament for eternity is actually two different Hebrew words put together. The first one is a word that means long time, and the second word is one that means lasting time. Long time, lasting time, and when they're put together, it's translated into English as forever and ever. But in reality, eternity is not forever and ever. Eternity is not endless time. Eternity, rather, transcends time. The best description that I have ever heard of eternity 
was this. The person describing it said, think of this universe as a box. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, God in the beginning created this universe and He created time. Imagine the universe as a box. Everything that is in this universe, the planets, the galaxies, everything is in this box. Time is in this box. Outside of this box is God, and outside of this box there is no such thing as time. Time is only in the box. God can see from the beginning of the timeline to the end of the timeline. If you think about eternity as being outside of the box, outside of time, there is no such thing as time outside of this universe. Is that what the Bible teaches? Listen to this, John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus wasn't simply saying that I am forever and ever and ever. He was saying, I am. I am a constant. I transcend time. Only God transcends time. His statement is, I am deity. I remember when I was in the school of preaching, one of our old instructors who's passed away now, I remember that when he used to pray, he would say, Lord, we are thankful to be on time's side of eternity. And that statement impressed me, time's side of, of eternity. The implication is, when you die, you are not on time's side of eternity. You're in the place where there is no more time. In other words, you leave the box of this universe and you leave the restraints of time. And I've oftentimes thought about the implication of that with regard to loved ones who have died. What does it seem like to them? In this world we have time, but when you leave time side of eternity and you go into eternity, there's not any time. So we think about the fact that, uh, you know, my, um, my husband, my wife, my mother, my father, whoever it is that I have lost, I think, well, they've been waiting on me. It's been 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. What must it seem like to them? But where they are, there's no time. It's just constant. It's mind-boggling to think about that. How do you express that concept into words? I believe it's John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I exist. I am. When you think about it that way, it helps us better understand 2 Peter 3 and verse 8, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What does that mean? Time is irrelevant to God. God transcends time. We think it's been a thousand years since God said that. Where God is, there's no time. He just said it. There, there is no time. It's irrelevant. And so He's not going to say, I said it a thousand years ago and so it doesn't apply. He just said it. When you understand this concept of time, it helps you better understand, Revelation 13 and verse 8, how Jesus could be the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. How can God say He's the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Because when you're outside the box of time and you can see the beginning and you can see the ending, he can say, yeah, he's already slain. I've, time is irrelevant to him. It helps you better understand Romans 3.25, how God passed over the sins that were in the Old Testament. Because in God's mind, he already sees the sacrifice. He already sees that Jesus has been sacrificed. Eternity is a constant point. There is no progressing of time. There will be no time. Here's the next one. 
We see what is eternity, but where is eternity? I will be somewhere. There's only two alternatives for where we can be in eternity. There's heaven and there's hell. Now, of course, prior to that, we've got Hades, paradise, and torment, Luke 16. Brethren, we have got to preach about hell. We have to preach about what it means to be lost. I don't think we can be what a Christian ought to be without preaching on hell. It makes me appreciate my salvation if I'm a Christian. Listen to the descriptions of hell. Mark chapter 9, three times hell is described as a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 22, 13, it's described as outer darkness. Revelation 21, 8, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Matthew 25, 30, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 14 and verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day or night. Now, in reality, there won't be day and there won't be night. God is simply uh, communicating to us the concept that it's not going to stop. I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Think of the most agonizing torment that you have ever experienced physically. Now I want you to think about the most agonizing torment that you have ever been through emotionally. Now think about it spiritually. Think about the greatest emptiness that you have ever had, the most intense pain, the most severe loneliness. Now imagine all of that rolled up together and it doesn't stop. That's the idea. Sometimes I used to ask the question, do you think that hellfire is literal fire? And I used to say, yes, I think it's literal fire, but I've changed my mind about that. But you know what's changed my mind? It's thinking about heaven that changed my mind. Because I think about heaven and I think about the streets of gold. The streets aren't literally going to be gold. They don't have that metallic substance in heaven. The Lord is just trying to communicate to us something that is the most beautiful that we can think of, but in reality, it's going to be better than that. Likewise, when it comes to hell, you think about the greatest pain and intensity that you can imagine, and it's got to be burning in fire. What's he saying? I'm saying it's going to be worse than that. I want you to do something for me, and I'm going to wrap it up. Do you have a day or an event in your life that you wish that you could have a do-over for? A day that you wish had never occurred? A day that you regret over and over and over and over? I certainly do, and it would be May 6, 2019. I have thought almost every day of my life since then, I wish I could go back and take it back. I wish I had never gotten on that four-wheeler if there were only a way. Now imagine having that kind of regret for all eternity. Imagine dying and lifting up your eyes in torment, and it's forever too late. You will live with that for all eternity. We are living on the edge of eternity tonight. That means we're close. That means at any moment you could fall over the edge, I could die unexpectedly, or the trumpet could sound. Tonight, are you prepared? Are you ready to meet the Lord in judgment? If you need to make a change tonight, while you are still on time side of eternity, 
you can do that. But you could leave here tonight and a truck could smash your car and it will be too late. And you will lift up your eyes with that regret. Tonight, do you need to obey the gospel? If you do, you can do that by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. We would be delighted to help you. Maybe you're here tonight as a Christian and you want to make some adjustments before it's too late. We would be honored if we could go to God and pray on your behalf. This afternoon, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come? Together we stand and sing the invitation song.